The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Here's what's ahead. A quarter of new leadership. Last year's market losers became 2021's biggest winners. Will the rotation hold in the second quarter? Plus, ahead of tomorrow's big jobs report, we will tell you where recruiters are seeing the most demand, what areas are facing a slowdown. And Google is accelerating the partial reopening of its offices, putting limits on future remote work. We've got the exclusive details. But we begin, of course, with today's market. Tom, she's got the numbers. People are making money on the long side, Melissa. That's the bottom line here. It's a green across the screen for the major indices. Right now at session highs, 4,012. This is the first time the S&P 500 has crossed that 4,000 level. So, again, a big milestone, psychologically speaking. But still, 4,012 highs of the day, up 1%, 1.5% gains for the Nasdaq Composite, showing some signs of life. It is now at least outperforming in the near term as interest rates pull back a little bit. Breaking down what's happening within the markets, we are seeing one part of the market that's showing some real signs of life as of late in certain parts of the semiconductor or computer chip business. Applied Materials, KLA Corp and Texas Instruments, each of these has done really well over the course of the last year. Each of these gets a gold star because each of these hit a record intraday high at some point in trading so far today. So, again, watch those computer chip stocks, especially those three. And then some of the high growth names. Interest rates are pulling back ever so slightly. Those growth-oriented momentum names are coming back into focus for many traders. Tesla shares up about 1% right now. Wayfair up about 6.5%. Fastly up 4.5%. And Pinterest up over 5% as well. So just keep an eye on some of those momentum, more valuation-oriented type names. Melissa, they're in the green today. We'll send things back over to you. All right. Thanks, Dom. Dom Chu. Will a new quarter be more of the same with a rotation to value and cyclicals leading the way? Let's take a look at the first quarter numbers. Energy coming off its best quarter ever, up nearly 30%. Industrials posting an 11% gain. And one of the biggest laggards was technology up less than 2%. Joining us now with their strategy and picks for Q2 are Jerry Castellini, Chief Investment Officer at Castle Arc Management, and Nancy Tangler, Chief Investment Officer at Laffer Tangler Investments. Good to see you both. Nancy, I will start off with you. Um, do you stick with, uh, with the playbook from Q1 or do you change? Oh, good to see you, Melissa. Um, I think you I think you adapt. I mean, you, you, you must remain overweight some of the cyclical groups and, and consumer discretionary would be our biggest overweight uh, along with industrials. But I think you balance that with an overweight to technology or at least a market weight to technology. We, we had been, um, you know, sort of pounding the table to, during the first quarter that this trade is not over. Uh, the market, in my view, is reacting to more robust growth rather than interest rates. We could have that debate. It doesn't really matter. The stocks were down. Uh, and and we, we see some names that have done nothing for six months, like a Microsoft, that uh, will, will probably be a good bet for the next 12 to 18 months. Yeah, uh, Nancy brings up a good point, Jerry, in terms of the number of big cap tech stocks that have basically gone sideways for six months. I mean, it is shocking, but the, but the names are the biggest tech stocks uh, in the world, effectively. Do you see some opportunities there, especially as, uh, you know, being the reopening trade seems to be so tempting as we ourselves, as we get back to our normal lives, um, it, it's, it's tempting to just say, you know what, the pandemic is over. Let's switch gears here. Yeah, I mean, it, we have to acknowledge where we are, right? Uh, the primary thing is professional money managers like us are really 
torn right now because we've had these great leaders that have uh, pulled back or, or gone nowhere for the, and we're wondering whether it really is time to jump in the water and, and buy the cyclicals. And I would argue two things. Number one, those tech names, while they're probably going to continue to be sources of funds, they've probably seen the worst of that. And it's more going to be a function of who can continue to execute and, and show in Microsoft's case that they got very solid uh, upward momentum. But the other side of this, Melissa, is to just look at the names that you can find that are, have a cyclical play, but don't necessarily have to be uh, all in tech or all in uh, thematic momentum. And we have lots of ideas for that. Mm -hmm. And we want to get to them. But I, I do want to ask Nancy one more question in terms of being in the cyclical trade and, and this sort of balance between wanting to be in that trade and recognizing that there, that is where the growth is, but seeing that there are opportunities. If you take a pair, and I'm just going to pick th these two stocks, a General Electric and a Netflix, Nancy. Interestingly, right at this moment in time, they are at the same exact forward P.E. of 54. So at this juncture, how do you start to look at these sorts of stocks where you have GE with this massive run year to date? And you have Netflix, too. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the conundrum. I, I, I do think um, that in the case of G, GE, they are in the sweet spot of, of many of the areas that may benefit from infrastructure. But for, for my bet long term, I, I, we don't own either. I, so that's my disclaimer. Mm -hmm. But I would be more inclined to look for opportunities to enter names like Netflix that will continue to gen, put up growth. Uh, and that's that's really what uh, I think is going to reward stocks in the next two to three years. We're participating in this value trade, um, but I, do, I think it's a trade. I think it's more of a cyclical movement than a secular trend. And so we're, we're, that's why we're barbelling our portfolios, because we think that's what you have to do. And it's, it's worked very well in the first quarter of the year. Yeah, Jerry, I want to delve into some of your picks, because some of them also fall into the same sort of conundrum. They've had some pretty nice runs. And so at this point in time, do you say, you know what, maybe, maybe the best is over? I mean, Ford, I believe believe is one of your picks, Jerry. That's up 38% this year, this year. Yeah. So, so what's next? And people bought cars during the pandemic. Are they going to keep up at this pace? Yeah. So it's our view that, first of all, we think the market with the S&P is going to hit 4,500 next year. So there's still a lot of cash that has to come into the markets to satiate people's needs to be invested. But where they're going to look I think, is something that's more of a hybrid. So you can buy Tesla today, but you can also buy Ford at a tenth of its valuation, even up 38 percent, hmm. but participate in the electric vehicle phenomena. And you just don't you just acknowledge that you're not in the market leader. But Ford is as good a play at this valuation in anything in that space. Um, go go to the payment processors. Right. You could own PayPal today. It's probably the lead valuation, the momentum play. But boy, micro, or, uh, MasterCard sits here is the best play in uh, recovering travel. And there is just a, a, a more pow powerful play on all of that. The last is essentially looking at the gambling industry in Las Vegas Sands. Mm -hmm. Las Vegas Sands has a duopoly in two of these Asian markets. And yet their balance sheet's cleaned up and they're going to get as good a cyclical pop as anybody. So if you take those three names, all of them have great presences, growth, long-term momentum building businesses, mm -hmm. but they also have this f incredible cyclical side that I think is going to fire here and, and reward investors in both ways. You know, we're down to the last 30 seconds or so of this conversation, and neither of you have mentioned the specter of rising taxes. 
Um, Nancy, how do you start thinking about corporate tax rates going to 28 percent? I mean, back in the day when corporate taxes were 35 percent, you know, prior to the 2017 tax legislation, there were a lot of funny things going on. Corporations would um, go overseas. There were inversions, right. et cetera, to escape the tax rates. What should we expect, do you think? Yeah, I'm concerned about that, Melissa. You probably saw in my notes. I think the market is not has not yet reacted uh, to the to the uh, probability that we will see an increase in the corporate tax rate. And and I think um, from an investor standpoint, what we hope for is that the capex spending that has already occurred and will continue to occur will likely put downward pressure on unit labor costs, and we may continue to see a productivity uh, led growth in the economy, much as we did in, in the 1990s. But if this goes too far, if we do get to 28% and not to 25%, which is kind of the global norm, then I think we need to, to begin factoring that into our models because PEs will compress in the face of that. And I, I just don't think Washington, maybe they don't care, but I also don't think they understand it as, as a 35-year uh, observer of tax policy, fiscal policy, and and Washington, D.C. So I am concerned about it. I don't think, I mean, there's so much power behind the economic growth at this time. I don't necessarily think it's going to put the kibosh on the on the bull market, but I do think we'll, we'll see a reaction in the market that will be pretty m meaningful if, if this bill goes too far. I mean, at the very least, we might see a pullback, a sharp pullback in buybacks, yeah. which would be another floor in the market that could be gone. Um, guys, good to see you. Great conversation. Jerry Castellini and Nancy Tangler. We got a letdown in the jobs market today. The Labor Department reporting first-time unemployment claims hitting 719,000 last week. That's 44,000 more than expected and higher than the week before, despite signs of overall improvement. But ADP reported private payrolls expanded at their fastest pace in September last month. My next guest says recruiter sentiment is at the highest since the pandemic began. For more, let's welcome in Evan Sohn, chairman and CEO of Recruiter.com. Evan, so you're feeling good. Your sentiment is high. What does that mean? Well, yeah, you're right. You know, so it's up from it's up to 3.8 the sentiment from last month's 3.7. So it's certainly the highest we've had since we started the recruiter index at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, but there's some interesting things that we're actually seeing. You know, the workloads went down from 18 to 16 uh, during uh, over the past month. Uh, COVID's impact on jobs are actually up uh, from 17% to 27%. And this is more again again how the recruiters are actually feeling. So we're seeing this strange phenomena where the workloads, and if you look at the employment numbers, uh, the college-educated jobs are actually getting filled much, much faster. That mm -hmm. unemployment level is actually uh, much lower than the non-college-educated jobs. So we're still waiting for those uh, less skilled labor or the non-college-educated jobs to really come back. And if you look at the data that we had, uh, we saw a, a really good increase in the logistics supply chain by about 40% in terms of the in-demand from last month to this month. And we're really hoping that that's going to have a nice surge in the actual uh, employment numbers uh, for the month. Another thing that actually flipped uh, is the priority of candidates uh, shifted to compensation over uh, remote work. And these two have been fighting it out neck and neck for a while now. But the last time that happened... Uh, we really saw a good surge in the larger volume roles uh, like logistics. Uh, so you see now on the graph now, IT and healthcare still remain pretty high sentiment, although IT is slightly down. Uh, that can actually bode exactly what I was saying before, mm -hmm. that those roles, mm -hmm. the expansion of the IT 
really happened. And now we're going to start seeing a little bit of a slowdown as those right. jo jobs right. are really harder to find. So the flip um, of compensation over remote work, that, that really reflects the idea that Americans are, are psychologically ready to go back to the to work, go back to the office, go back to things as normal. They're not as concerned uh, about the pandemic and, and catching COVID, for instance. Yeah, that's right. You know, someone asked uh, probably months ago, gee, are people not going back to work because of fear mm -hmm. uh, or was it because they got their stimulus check? As you see now, you know, they want to go back to work. Compensation is now taking over slightly again from remote. So people are ready to go back to work. And let's just hope the jobs are there. Uh, the ADP report showed a really nice bounce in leisure and hospitality, representing a real significant percentage uh, of that. Uh, I think it was 32 percent of the total ADP jobs were actually in leisure and hospitality. Um, so those are really in the less college educated. And right. again, you know, I'm not going to drive a generalization, but more volume oriented jobs. Which subsector of services is, is the slowest to come back, to, the slowest to show that bounce? Yeah, I think the customer service and retail are still mm -hmm. really lagging. You know, it's those customer facing roles. Um, you know, one thing that we started tracking a few months ago was the use of video. You know, every industry is changing or most industries are changing as a result of uh, the pandemic. And uh, we really believe that video first screening will really play a significant role. And we now have one out of every three of the recruiters that participate in the survey are using a dedicated video screening tool, but only 20 percent actually require a video first. And that would probably tell you that there are far fewer customer facing roles uh, that are getting out there right now. So that would say your customer service, your retail sector really want to see those, you know, bounce back in order to really see those numbers really, really move quickly. Evan, great to get your insights. Thank you. Evan Sohn. Thanks so much. Coming up, first out, first in, Google was one of the first major companies to send employees home last year. Now it's calling them back. We'll get the exclusive details of its accelerated reopening plans. And speaking of offices, we'll talk with the CEO of REIT, Hudson Pacific, about what he is seeing in the real estate market. That stock outpacing, excuse me, the markets this year up 15%, and Google is one of their biggest tenants. The exchange is back right after this. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Google was one of the first major U.S. companies to send employees home last year at the start of the pandemic. The tech giant now speeding up plans to bring employees back to the office starting this month. CNBC.com technology reporter Jennifer Elias joins us now with the very latest. Jennifer, what are their plans? What are they telling employees at this point? Yeah, so Google's chief people officer sent an employee-wide email yesterday to employees 
basically saying that while there's still a deadline of September 1st to where employees can come back, they're starting to open up offices and move employees in on a volunteer basis starting this month. So it's a little bit sooner than expected, but you know, by no means are they saying, you know, employees need to start coming in right now. It's more of a, you know, open to employees saying we're starting to see improvements in other areas of the country. And so in some areas, um, you may have the option to come back starting soon. Uh, and this is really just, you know, Google is trying to get employees to take seriously and, and to know that they really value collaboration and in-person work. This is a little bit different from what we're seeing from some other companies that, mm-hmm. you know, like Facebook, um, which said that, you know, it sees at least 50 percent of its workers doing mostly remote or Twitter or Square saying they can do it indefinitely. Um, so, you know, Google's historically a very collaborative company. They really like employees to be there. They have really secretive projects that they need people to be in a close contact with. So um, th- this is really an extension of that. Um, and, you know, they're saying we want people in the office. you got to wonder, Jennifer, if this is going to be sort of a, a, you know, one factor in in a job search, you know, for somebody, if they're deciding between a, a job at Google or, or somewhere else where you yeah. mentioned where you can remote work, if Google's at an, a disadvantage, or maybe an advantage because of where they're placing the emphasis on, on corporate office culture. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good point, and people will probably make decisions based on that. I think Google Google's return plan, though, is starting in September. They're still going to adopt this sort of hybrid model. So employees will come into the office for at least three days a week, but they'll still get some flexibility there. And I think Google's smart in that and wants to you know, make sure that it has the best talent. Um, it's not going to be too rigid. They're giving employees options if they do, you know, want to apply to go to a different office or a location. And so there's just some extra hoops to jump for that if they do want to do that long term. But overall, um, they've been on top of really organizing this. And I think they want to keep the talent that, you know, wants you know, not this one size fits all, but a sort of more flexible approach. All right. Jennifer, thanks. Jennifer Elias with CNBC.com. Well, Google leases more than 1.2 million square feet of office space from West Coast commercial real estate powerhouse Hudson Pacific Properties, which also counts Amazon and Netflix among its tenants. While many have warned that commercial real estate will take a big hit from remote work, HPP isn't seeing that right now. The company announced deals to lease 300,000 square feet of office space in San Francisco and Silicon Valley during the first quarter. The stock is up more than 15 percent so far this year. Victor Coleman is CEO of Hudson Pacific Properties. Victor, great to have you with us. Hey, Melissa, how are you? Um, is the difference here in terms of what we're seeing in, in cities on the East Coast versus what you're seeing, the nature of the industries you serve? You know, I think I think what Jennifer said on, on your earlier piece is exactly the case. I mean, these creative companies who built their entire reputations based on connectivity and collaboration are realizing that the world of creative office space, which is what their mantra was, which, you know, defined a long time ago was basically more people in less space is now changing to destination space and connected space. And the tenant mix is creative tenants, tech tenants, media tenants, which is, you know, the lion's share of our portfolio. So you signed 300,000 square feet of office space in the first quarter alone. What sorts of companies are they big tenants leasing big amounts of space? Are they startups? I'm just trying to understand where the demand is coming from. 
I mean, the demand is in two levels. You've got a lot of smaller companies that are coming due in, in the renewal processes. Um, they, they realize they need space. And so they're renewing for maybe short to midterm times. Um, but we did a large lease with Google. Uh, Google's our largest tenant. Um, they are, uh, uh, as you well know, way ahead of everybody else. You know, I think that their connectivity is part of their mantra and they want to grow their platform. And so uh, in Silicon Valley and in other markets with us, they've been they've been very, very active. So for a, a tenant like a Google, is it because they're hiring more people or is it because they've got the workforce and they need to space them out? You know, so many offices eliminated walls. They started, you know, configuring people in pods. We have that here at the CNBC newsroom. And as we anticipate back to work, you have to think, are we going to be working in that sort of environment once again? So the numbers pretty much speak for themselves. I think mm-hmm. you, you saw us get down to about 150 feet per person in most spaces. And now you're seeing it go back to uh, more like 225 to 250. So you're exactly right. I mean, Google is looking at it's the same amount of people, but they're spreading them out and they're going to have different timelines in, in terms of when people are going to come to the office. But I think the whole key is and the catalyst is, you know, connectivity is coming back. And, and coming back in, in a very big way. And so these companies that are prepared to support that are the ones that are going to succeed. And you're seeing that with majority of these tech companies are making decisions today, like Google did or like Amazon did and the likes of that. Did you have to make any sort of rent concessions or lease concessions to any of your tenants, Victor? And have we seen sort of all of that wash out um, from your balance sheet in terms of the impact? I think the majority of that has been has been already come through in the last 12 months. And, mm-hmm. and the deals that we're doing now are starting to approach sort of pre-COVID numbers. Um, the key is concessions, and the concessions have been stable all the way through. Concessions meaning lower rents? So in terms of... Me, meaning tenant improvements and free rent. Right. And in terms of the new leases that you're signing, are they, is the rent per square foot, or I'm not sure how you measure it, um, is that back to pre-COVID levels? Almost, almost 100% there. Wow. Okay, so we're back. Victor, good to speak with you. Thank you. Thanks, Melissa. Take care. Victor Coleman. Coming up, Morgan Stanley says there is one big tech company out there that's the Netflix of gaming. The reason and the reason, the name and the reason behind it. Plus, a brewing battle in the home rental market. A look at Expedia's new strategy to poach Airbnb super hosts. The exchange is back in two. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at... 3 a.m. The office was shocked. (laughs) That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to the exchange. Markets right now are in the green. We've got green arrows across the board for the major three indices. The S&P 500 is up nine-tenths of a percent. Worth noting, the Nasdaq Composite is up 1.4 percent, even in the face of a 10-year yield, which sits at 1.68 percent. Also not on this board is the VIX, which earlier in the session went below 18 for the first time since before the pandemic. It's sitting at just about 18 right now. Taking a check on the sectors, energy is uh, is uh, leading the S&P 500 right now with a gain of 1.86 percent. Utilities pulling up the rear uh, just slightly on the negative side. Taking a look at some of the movers at this hour, shares of Emergent Biosolutions, which produces an ingredient in the Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccine. That is sharply lower following a quality issue with a batch of the vaccine doses, rendering an unknown number of doses unusable. Emergent is down 14%. Shares of Micron, meantime, higher after beating at the top and the bottom line, better than expected guidance. Separately, the company's reportedly exploring a deal for a Japanese chip maker. That stock's up 3.5%. And Western Digital reportedly also a suitor in that deal, and that stock is higher by almost 5%. 
Shares of CarMax, we're watching that too. Lower on weaker than expected sales. The company did note robust growth in March, helped by tax refunds and stimulus, but the stock is down more than 6%. Now let's get to Courtney Reagan for CNBC News Update. Court. Hi, Melissa. Here's what's happening at this hour. In an interview released by ESPN on YouTube, President Biden calls the decision to reopen Texas Rangers Stadium at full capacity a mistake, saying it's, quote, not responsible to open without attendance limits. He also pushed back against governors and other state officials who have lifted mask mandates. Kimberly Clark, the maker of Huggies, Kleenex and Cottonelle, announcing it will be raising prices on many of its products, including Scott toilet paper, tissues and diapers in the United States and Canada, blaming rising commodity costs for the hikes. The price increases will start in late June. Well, the Orange Police Department holding a news conference after four people, including one child, were killed and two other were injured, including the suspect in a mass shooting at an office building in Orange, California, Wednesday. The wounded gunman was apprehended after a shootout with authorities. Be sure to tune in to the news with Shepard Smith tonight for more developments on the third mass shooting in the U.S. in less than a month. That's a CNBC News update at this hour. Melissa, back over to you. All right, Courtney, thanks. Coming up, Piper says there is one streaming service whose content is unrivaled and it's time to get in. Is Microsoft the Netflix of gaming plus Bitcoin and baseball? That's all ahead. But first, it is time for show and tell. We show the chart, then tell the story. Today's chart, Frontier Airlines. The stock is lower in its trading debut, now below its IPO price. The CEO is saying optimistic about the future, telling CNBC he expects demand to take off. We're seeing the vaccine unlock that demand as everyone has expected. And when we look at the month of March, we went uh, cash flow positive. And so that's just a reflection of the demand picture, but it's just getting going. I mean, you know, here we are in New York today, the quarantine restriction is gone. And by Memorial Day, it's gonna be big. President Biden is holding his first cabinet meeting right now. Let's get right to it. With America's jobs program. And while most of the cabinet will have a role in helping shape and press the jobs, plan. Today I'm announcing that I'm asking five cabinet members to take special responsibility to explain the plan to the American public. Working with my team here in the White House, these cabinet members will represent me in dealing with Congress, engage the public in selling the plan, and help work out the details as we uh, refine it and move forward. These five members will be Pete Buttigieg, Jennifer Granholm, Marcia Fudge, Marty Walsh, and Gina Raimondo. And uh, I think uh, I want to thank them in advance for the role they're going to play with this added assignment I'm asking them to take on. And uh, we'll be discussing that today and among other things. And one of those other things, uh, our administration, is a commitment to uh, buy America plan we're putting forward to make sure that when the government is spending taxpayers' money, that they're spending on American-made goods, American corporations, and American employees. Today, I'm directing every member of the cabinet, I mean this sincerely, everyone, to take a hard look at their agency spending and make sure it follows my Buy American standard, which we set out in January. I'm going to ask you all to report back to me at the next cabinet meeting. And now uh, we've got a lot of business to do and get done. I thank the press for being here, but talk to you all later. 
Talk to you all later. That's our key to get out of the room there. <laughs> President Biden uh, elaborating a little bit on his infrastructure plan, which he outlined yesterday night in Pittsburgh, saying that he's going to direct five cabinet members to explain and sell this plan to the public. Also will direct all agencies at the federal level to take a hard look at what they're spending on and make sure they're buying American where they can. Meantime, let's get you uh, caught up on a few stories that should be on your radar. It's time for Rapid Fire here to break down the headlines. Are Robert Frank, Michael Santoli, and Molly Wood, host and senior editor of Marketplace Tech. First up, Piper Sandler's resuming coverage of Netflix with a positive outlook. The firm is pressing play on the stock with an overweight rating, a 605 price target. Piper Sandler says uh, Netflix has established a growth template to drive its narrative along. The formula includes consistent subscriber gains, modest price increases for subscription service, and unrivaled original content production and quality. Shares of Netflix are getting a boost today. They're still down more than 10 percent. From their 52-week high, you know, in our market conversation at the top of the show, Mike Santoli, I was um, putting to Nancy Tengler the idea that Netflix's forward PE and General Electric's forward (laughs) PE are the same right now. Yeah. So what do you think of this call? Well, it, really, it's just saying the stock could get back just a little beyond mm-hmm. the highs uh, of, uh, of all-time highs in recent months. So, in other words, it's relatively modest, 16% upside. But, yeah, you've had massive valuation compression. I was just looking at Netflix relative to Disney over the past several years. Netflix was at, like, 50 times cash flow two years ago. Disney was at 10. Now it's Netflix at 35 and uh, Disney around 30 or 31. So clearly it's the incumbent. It's playing more defense than offense in this more crowded field. And it's kind of just more incremental gains in terms of preserving its franchise and content, but also, you know, kind of locking up the, the, the password stuff and, and, and pricing. So it's a little bit less of, a, of an exciting, innovative story. It's much more about blocking and tackling. It's not exciting or innovative anymore. Uh, Molly, I mean, these are these are fighting words here. I mean, is it really the incumbent that has to defend itself against all these startups or is it sort of the centerpiece in a streaming menu that consumers have and you add a little bit of Netflix or you add a little bit of Viacom CBS? Well, I think the problem for Netflix is that the more you add, the more you end up paying. And so Netflix is starting to look like the one that's going to have to spend a ton of money on original content to keep keeping up. Disney, the juggernaut, is consolidating so much content, it's starting to feel like cable. And those modest price increases keep making it the most expensive one in the bunch. I actually think it's fairly vulnerable. If you've got 10 different services, it's starting to look like the one you might be able to cancel. Huh. Robert Frank, what is, the, what is your menu of, uh, of streaming services in the, in the Frank household? Uh, we have everything, and I can't cancel <laughs> Netflix because season three of Formula One Drive to Survive just started, and I'm, I'm hooked on that docuseries. I love Formula One. Look, I mean, yes, they, they are playing defense from a stock perspective, but if you look at the content side, they had 138 original series last year, 180 original movies, and that's, that's in 2020 when there was a slowdown in production. Yeah, it's going to be very expensive. But in this fight for, let's say, most families have three or four streaming services, there's no question they will always be number one or two. And as far as price increases go, I mean, in my house, they could double the price and I would still have to pay given how much my daughters watch Netflix. So uh, in the short term, it's going to be a bite to profits. 
but their content is just massive and getting bigger. Automatic pay on the credit card really works in Netflix's favor. I got to say that. <laughs> All right. Speaking of Netflix, let's turn out on Microsoft. Morgan Stanley is calling it the Netflix of gaming. The firm drilling down on Microsoft's nearly $14 billion gaming business in light of reports that it's in talks to acquire messaging platform Discord. The firm highlights the three C's of Microsoft's gaming strategy, content, community, and cloud. These three pillars would allow people to game wherever they want, whenever they want. Shares of Microsoft continuing to climb higher today after winning what could be a $22 billion contract to deliver AR devices to the U.S. Army. That happened yesterday. In this particular example, Molly, is it good to be the Netflix of gaming? (laughs) (laughs) In this case, I think it's great to be the next Netflix of gaming, especially since Discord is free to use for most people. The challenge for Microsoft, look, this is a great move if they end up buying Discord. Yes, there will be some gamers who in the short term are horrified by being part of the big machine. But for the most part, Microsoft succeeded in leaving Minecraft alone, keeping gamers happy. They would instantly acquire a great big community. And as long as they can figure out how to let Discord be Discord and also talk to Xbox, then they're definitely in the good part of the Netflix place. Not too long ago, Robert, all the big major uh, tech companies wanted gaming. Um, Amazon was in the gaming game, so to speak. Um, Google was trying to do that, too, with its own game studio. And here we are. They both basically effectively dropped out and you got Microsoft left. Um, Is it theirs to take? Look, I I think Microsoft, it's like the three C's, right? It's content, cloud and community. And this tap, you know, ticks all those boxes. I think Molly had it exactly right. If Microsoft leaves Discord alone and lets it be Discord and grow throughout the whole gaming ecosystem, this will be a great buy, even at, by the way, $10 billion for a company that generates $130 million in revenue. So the price tag is just insane. But if they overpay and then undermanage it Mm -hmm. and leave it alone, I think it could be good for Microsoft. Where does this leave GameStop, Mike, (laughs) dare I ask? Well, I mean, GameStop, first of all, I think it is worth uh, actually kind of checking in on that GameStop story as if nobody before thought about selling video games and video game content online before we had a little bit of a, of a disruption in the board of GameStop. So I don't think it changes that story necessarily. But for, for Microsoft, a $1.8 trillion market cap company, you can just buy for a relatively low price relative to Microsoft some kind of access to a fast-growing real-time messaging network where there's a lot of eyeball hours being consumed. Also, I try to keep track of what these stock market influencers and these virtual trading rooms are up to. A lot of it happens on Discord. It's an adaptable platform. Mm. It's not just about playing games. And let's talk about the big IPO of the day now. SoftBank-backed Compass debuting on the NYSE just a few hours ago after downsizing its IPO price range considerably. The stock is up. Compass calls itself a technology company, but industry insiders say Compass's real source of growth is poaching star brokers from the competition. In fact, realtors are skeptical of the techie story Compass is trying to sell. From my experience there, you know, there hasn't been any technology that I can single-handedly point to and say this has changed or made my, my business better. What kind of technology, Robert, do they think that they have that other companies don't? I mean, a searchable database. I mean, I, I just don't really know what kind of tools would be unique to Compass. 
Well, what they say, and look, hats mm-hmm. off to Robert Repkin. He came out of nowhere to tackle this entrenched industry. He now has $3.7 billion in revenue. But you're right. They have a CRM system. They have, you know, a search, very good searchable database of real estate uh, offerings. And they have sort of what they call an end-to-end solution for brokers. The challenge is they've been, they've proven very good at spending money, over $900 million in operating losses over three years. But can they make money? And the challenge is their split with brokers right now is somewhere between 80 to 85 percent that the brokers keep. Most firms, it's around 65 to 70 percent. And by the way, Real, Realogy, which is the biggest competitor, is valued at around a fifth the market cap that we now see for Compass. So I just don't know, given those economics and the need to grow by acquiring realtors, what their long-term goal is for profits. Now, Refkin said this morning, Realtors aren't driven by fees. They're driven by clients when it comes to who they're going to work for. Melissa, I know you and I are both real estate obsessed, and we know that realtors do care about fees. And right now, Compass is paying the best on the street. And, and that is their advantage, but that's too bad for investors now that it's a publicly traded company, um, Amali. And, and it sort of seems to, for them to say, you know, it's all about the, the, the realtors and keeping them, but then it's also about the technology. I mean, their sales pitch is a little muddied. It is. And I think you see a lot of companies right now in the market. I think fintech is an example who are putting essentially like a tech veneer on what is basically an old or pre-existing business model. And so it's kind of heartening to me in some ways to see the market say, you actually have to prove this and ideally make some money with this strategy. And that is not to say that real estate is not uh, an industry that is ripe for some kind of disruption. But I think the idea of having more of it online, but still making people go sign a huge mountain of paperwork is not the transformation that makes you, you know, the business that you're promising that you are. Closings still have to happen in person for the most part, or there's a lot of things you have to do in advance to arrange it for it not to be in person. Um, Anyway, let's move on. A happy opening day. While baseball fans rejoice that the 2021 season is here, we have an update on a story from the Oakland A's. Oakland Athletics President Dave Cavill joined the exchange last month to announce that fans could purchase a six-person suite for one whole Bitcoin, making them the first team in American professional sports to do this. Well, the offer expires today. While Cavill shared that there was healthy interest when it was announced, the Oakland A's have sold just one suite and a 10-game package for a fraction of a Bitcoin, not exactly a home run. The team does plan on to hold the Bitcoin. This is interesting, Mike. You're a baseball <laughs> fan. What do you... What do you think of this? You know, uh, I would say a moderately successful marketing gimmick and and truly has to be considered mostly a marketing gimmick. Oakland's in the Bay Area. They have this kind of, you know, old and and kind of chronically, you know, not very uh, not very inviting uh, stadium. Uh, They always struggle with attendance. They're very scrappy. They've had great success on the field. Uh, But it seems like, you know, Golden State Warriors used to play in Oakland until they moved over to San Francisco two years ago. And they tried to cultivate this Silicon Valley type where, you know, we're up on the newest uh, tech thing. I, I see this as part of that more than it is really a financial gambit. I feel like the, what the, the next thing they should do, Robert, is to create some sort of NFT. I mean, that's really where it's at right now. Bitcoin is so like five months ago. Yeah, no, NFT of a ticket. That would, that would probably sell for more. Like the challenge with using Bitcoin to buy anything, let's say you bought this for one Bitcoin, $60,000. You pay taxes every time you use Bitcoin on whatever gain you. So you could end up paying taxes of over $20,000, including California state ordinary income taxes, 
when you buy this. So that's like a $65,000 suite that you're actually paying eighty dollars or $90,000 for when you roll in the taxes. So that's a lot of extra hot dogs that you could buy just because you're using Bitcoin versus regular cash. Hopefully you're getting really good hot dogs in that box. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Robert Frank, Mike <laughs> yeah. Santoli, and Molly Wood. Well, Expedia's Verbo is trying to entice Airbnb's cash cows over to its service. We'll get the details in the battle of the online bookers next. Welcome back to The Exchange. The competition in the home rental market is heating up with Expedia enticing Airbnb hosts to switch platforms. Seema Modi joins us now with the details. Hey, Seema. Hey, Melissa. Expedia deploying a massive sales team to poach Airbnb's super hosts. These are highly valuable homeowners who have proven themselves to be a cut above the rest with good ratings, reviews, minimal cancellations, and a higher average occupancy rate. That's why Expedia has been targeting these hosts through direct marketing and social media, and it seems to be paying off. Expedia ran a pilot program on 1,600 Verbo homeowners who recently joined from competing sites, and their bookings, the company says, have risen on average by 20 This follows Airbnb's stellar performance in the public market. And Melissa, that's really prompted its competitors like Expedia and Booking to get more aggressive, especially considering the fact that the latest vacation rental data shows that demand remains very strong going into this summer. Mel? Seema, this sort of assumes that the demand for homes as opposed to hotels will remain strong even after the reopening. Here's the thing. The travel recovery is going to be so strong that at least according to preliminary data that we're receiving from the likes of Expedia, Booking, AirDNA, which tracks all the home rental data, suggests that there will be demand not just for homes, but hotels as well. So prior to, uh, you know, prior to 2021, the conversation was, was around which part of the travel market will win this summer. It looks like at this point there's demand for both. But again, it's not in urban cities. It's those remote locations. Right. Seema, thanks. Seema Modi. Still ahead, fans turn to social media influencers for everything from dinner recipes to fashion inspiration. But one app is turning the tables and letting users influence the influencers. We will talk to the CEO of Nunu next. And don't forget, you can watch us live on the go using the CNBC app. The Exchange will be right back. The creator economy is the fastest growing type of small business with more than 50 million people around the world who consider themselves to be content creators. Now, one app called New New is giving everyone the chance to become a creator and make money off their fans by letting them pay to vote to control parts of their lives. You heard me right. Here to explain is Courtney Smith, the founder and CEO of New New. Courtney, great to have you with us. Thank you. I got to be honest with you. It's intriguing, but it kind of sounds weird. So how does this work? Yeah, so NuNu is essentially a decision-making platform that lets you vote to control the outcomes of other people's lives. So your input directly impacts what a person is going to do next in their life. So it's a very intimate and interactive experience for pretty much everyone involved. Okay, so can you give us an example of this? Yeah, so on our platform, you purchase a level of voting power in someone's life. You pick whoever you want and you vote on what it is they need help with, and you get rewarded by watching them live out what gets the highest number of votes. And the more votes that you purchase for a specific person is the higher the chance of your choice coming to life. So there's like this extremely high level of trust almost between the user and the person who's paying to engage with them. Mm -hmm. And from what we've seen, people always so far always end up doing what received the highest number of votes because it's really almost like a sign of appreciation 
to the people who paid for that privilege of being involved in your life. Right. And you don't want to let them down. You want to have like a great two-way relationship. Okay. So um, in the notes that I have from the producer, you, you use the term a human stock market. So who, who is making the money? Who is paying whom? Um, and, you know, how much do you get paid in all of this? Yeah, so we say human stock market because essentially the voting power to us, it's almost like purchasing shares, like as you would in a stock market, but you're purchasing voting power in someone's life. So you kind of are taking little bits and having the ability to control things that they do. So that's kind of where that reference comes from. I see. Um, in terms of the person who is allowing other people into their lives, for instance, if I wanted to go on this platform and say, hey, guys, you know, you want to influence my life. Can I dictate or set the parameters as to how much control can I say it's tell me what sweater I should wear today or how I should do my hair or, you know, something like that? Yeah, I mean, essentially, it's exactly that. Uh, we have people who use it every single day before they go to their gymnastics practice. You're figuring out with them what they should wear to their practice. You're helping them figure out what they should eat for lunch or for dinner or who they should hang out with or where they should go. So it plays into like very small kind of mundane things. But also there's a few people like recently we had someone who decided to get a puppy and she got the puppy because of everyone who <laughs> voted. So it, it can get like exciting and crazy, but it's also like simple decisions as well. Yeah. You got a lot of big backers, Courtney. Um, is there thoughts to how this could expand beyond these small everyday decisions? But the, what is the vision? Yeah, for us, we definitely see Unu becoming a utility in people's lives and a way for the everyday person to monetize and make money just by being themselves and living their life. Because it doesn't matter how boring you think you are, there's somebody out there who would find you interesting. And we're, also getting, we're getting to a point also in society where we're so desensitized now because everything is so overly contrived and overly produced that when we see something that just feels raw, it's so much more enticing to us. And that's essentially what our platform is doing because people are, it's like no filter, just very to the point, very dry in the moment. Mm -hmm. And people are really resonating with that. All right. Well, it's in beta test right now, but I'll be looking for it. Courtney, thank you. Thank you. Courtney Smith of New New. Well, we've got a news alert for you. President Joe Biden has requested that Education Secretary Miguel Cardona prepare a report on the president's legal authority to cancel up to $50,000 in student debt per borrower. White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain said in an interview with Politico today, he says, hopefully we will see that in the next few weeks. And then he'll look at that legal authority, he'll look at the policy issues around that, and he'll make a decision. Remember, on the campaign trail, the president said he supported $10,000 in student loan forgiveness. So this would be a magnitude uh, bigger for students out there. All right, that does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.